All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study of the Word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to reflect upon who you are and what you have done for us in the songs that we have sung today. As they, the singing helps to focus our attention upon you, reminding us of who you are and what you've done, reminding us of the fact that you're Grace is sufficient for us in every area, that there's no challenge, there's no difficulty, there's no problem that that doesn't find its solution in your word. And that at times life is hard and it's difficult living in the devil's world, but yet we know that we are to persevere and that the answers are always going to be in your word. And that's the test, is to go to you, go to your word, to find the solutions for life's problems. Father, as we study today, may we be reminded of the fact that you are the one who oversees and guides and directs history, and that therefore, because of who you are, we can come to you with whatever circumstances there are in life and find rest, Uh, rest for uh, being weary, rest in terms of our faith rest drill, and focusing on that future rest that we will have uh, once this life is over and we are face-to-face with you, and then we reign with you in the millennial kingdom. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, which is a significant chapter. We began this last week. Primarily, I gave an introduction to these two events. We just barely touched the first one. But I wanted to spend some time going back into the background from the Old Testament on these two events, focusing on what had been revealed by God to Israel in the Mosaic Law with reference to, uh, with reference to Shabbat, uh, the Hebrew word for Sabbath, that the Sabbath day is the seventh day. It is Saturday. It is not Sunday. Sunday is not the uh, the Christian Sabbath. That was a view that entered into church history uh, primarily through the Puritans uh, during the late 1500s and 1600s. And there, you you still find groups of Christians who think that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath and they try to observe it. I always chuckle every time I talk about that. I'm reminded of of, um, a very well-known Old Testament scholar by the name of Gleason Archer, and he was a head of the Old Testament department for many years at, at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. But he observed the Sabbath on Sunday. He observed Christian Sabbath. Now, there's strange groups that do. Uh, that is, non-Orthodox groups that do. But there are still some conservative evangelicals who try to set aside. And there's a, there's a certain 
attitude there that I think is uh, is uh, is honorable to, to Sunday, recognizing it's the Lord's day and setting aside that day. But they make it, they try to conform it to the Sabbath, which makes it legalistic. And he was asked one time um, how exactly he observed the Sabbath. And he said, well, I don't work. I, I, I don't do various things on the Sabbath. Uh, and I don't watch football. I had a lady in my first church, virile missionary, retired missionary, spent her life on the mission field down in uh, uh, Columbia. And she was back, and she just thought every Christian needed to observe the Christians on Sabbath on, on Sunday and not do anything. But she loved to go out to eat with three or four of her uh, lady friends in the church. And I said, well, you go there. And if that cafeteria is open, that means that they're having all those people work on the Sabbath. You have a problem with that? She didn't want to talk to me anymore about the Sabbath. I was spoiling her fun. Jesus sort of spoils the fun of the Pharisees here in this chapter as their confrontation, which has been gradually developing over the previous four or five chapters, and now it comes to a head. As I pointed out last time, as you read through the life of Christ in each of the Gospels, there comes a turning point, a crisis point, where this head-on collision between the grace focused ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ comes into full bore confrontation with the legalism of the Pharisees. But that's only the surface issue. The underlying issue is that Jesus is making a claim that he is God and that this runs counter to that Unitarian monotheism of, of the Pharisees, and they view Jesus' claim to be God as blasphemy. They, they, and, and, in, in, and much of Judaism has viewed the Christian claim that Jesus is God and the Holy Spirit is God as, as Christian, as a, as a form of polytheism, the worship of, of, of many gods. And so this is the real issue. It is Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. Jesus claimed to be one with God. Jesus claimed to have, to be the final authority in interpreting the, the Mosaic law, the final authority in interpreting the Word of God, because the written Word of God is the counterpart to Him who it is the writ, the, uh, excuse me, the living Word of God. And therefore, He has the authority there. So the issue in these two events ultimately boils down to Jesus presenting himself as the Lord of the Sabbath, and then he he demonstrates that he is the Lord of the Sabbath through his uh, the miracle that he performs in the in this second event. Now I want you to notice something. This is a point of confusion for maybe a lot of people. The term that Jesus uses here to refer to himself is that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, there's another phrase that we find, and we sing it when we sing, uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and that refers to God as Lord Sabaoth. And the only difference between this word and Sabaoth is that O. But they're two different Hebrew words. Shabbat is the word here meaning the seventh day. It is also a, a, a word meaning rest. 
But uh, Sabaoth, notice it starts with an S, a not an SH. And it is a word that means armies or host. That O-T-H at the end is a Hebrew plural. And so um, Sabaoth, is, it's spelled different in the Hebrew, but when it's brought over into English, because Hebrew has two or three different S's uh, and S-type consonants, in the alphabet, it's clear in Hebrew you would never confuse the two, but in English, when you transliterate it, it's a little confusing. So some people don't recognize or understand that difference. Well, what we have seen is that there's this, this gradual development of, of conflict uh, and opposition to Jesus. And in chapter 11, there is uh, the intensification of this conflict, going back to the fact that uh, uh, the, the, as John the Baptist came and as Jesus came, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, really tried to get Jesus and John the Baptist to dance to their tune. They had this well-defined theological system, and they expected to, the Messiah to come and to conform to their system. In fact, in the, with the Pharisees, they expected the, that when the Messiah came, he would continue to work with them in redefining the Mosaic Law. And as I pointed out last time, there was a tradition uh, that developed after the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, when Israelites had come from, uh, the Jews had returned from captivity in Babylon, first under Ezra, and the Ezra generation was concerned with biblical education. And part of the religious uh, the religious leaders was a group called the Sopharim. They would also be part of the Pharisees. And a Sopher was someone who was a, a scribe, who was not only responsible for maintaining the copies of the Scripture, but they would also teach the law. And initially, they, uh, that first generation, they were responsible for teaching the law uh, to the people who were basically ignorant of what the Torah taught. The next generation of Sopharim came along, and they were more concerned about keeping the law and that the people wouldn't violate the law. And so they looked at the law as as the center, and they had to protect the law, those 613 commandments that were in the Mosaic Law. So they wanted to develop a number of traditions that would function like a fence uh, around the law, so that if you didn't break those traditions, uh, then you'd be protected from from uh, breaking the the commandments of the law. If you broke a one of those one of those traditions, then you still hadn't broken one of the 613 commandments. So it, it was a protection mechanism. And these were developed. There were about twelve to fifteen hundred additional commands. For example, on on Shabbat, they had thirty nine different things you could not do. This is at the time of Jesus. That that uh, was expanded even more under the next group, uh, which was referred to as the uh, Tanaim. And so this became the tradition of the fathers. Paul refers to the tradition of the fathers as he's countering Judaism. And that's what, what this was. And so this is what Jesus is running up against. Ultimately, their authority was what they called the oral law. As they developed these additional commandments, they said that they, in order to give themselves uh, credibility and uh, a basis for authority, 
They said that this reflected the oral law that was given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai, that God gave Moses two things. He gave him the written law and the oral law, and the oral law was just passed down orally from generation to generation among the prophets and the priests, and now that this is what they were, they were teaching. Now, there's no historical or biblical basis for that. This was something that was invented in the uh, second temple period after the return after the return from Babylon, but but it's that that's a neat little system that you get because uh, if if that's true, then you can come along and say that that if uh, uh, David did something uh, in the Old Testament that violated uh, their view of the Sabbath, then he's he's violating the oral law because the oral law was given before David. So the, it really created a, a distortion of the way they interpreted a number of things uh, in the in the Old Testament. And so this is the backdrop for this particular situation that develops. The other thing we need to be reminded of again is that that the way Matthew organizes this material is he ends chapter eleven. Remember, there are no chapter divisions in the original. So we would, as you read this in the original, you would just read through chapter 11 and read right into chapter 12, and therefore you would see this connection. Now I have to draw this out a little bit because we usually stop at the end of one chapter and then start at the next. But Jesus says at the end of chapter 11, Come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So he's talking about labor. He's talking about rest. He says, My yoke upon you, or take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And this phraseology related to a yoke was specifically assigned to the uh, Mosaic law. It was a yoke. It was a burden. All of these additional commands were a burden to the people. And, and it was a sign that if you took, if you wanted to uh, be a Pharisee, you would take the yoke of the, of the Pharisees. That indicated a submission to their authority. And so Jesus is, by saying this, he's specifically challenging the Pharisaic authority, he say, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. You won't find rest in the law. Well, wait a minute, what about Shabbat? Shabbat is supposed to be a basis for rest. No, you won't find rest in the law because under the Pharisee, Pharisaical interpretation of the law, it's a burden. There's no rest. So the theme of rest is incredibly important here. And Jesus goes on to say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, one thing we should note here is that Jesus is making a claim that he now is the source of rest. He is the source of rest. Now, Matthew, I think, organizes this in such a way that this is a very subtle point that isn't really developed in the text. And if we go to Hebrews... We see that that is emphasized in the text, that, that Jesus is our rest. He is the one in whom we rest. So he's making this claim that he is the source of rest for Israel, not the Pharisees and not their religious system. So this is the backdrop, and then immediately we go into, uh, into the, next, uh, the next section. Let me skip ahead here. I've lost my cursor. Somewhere it's... There you go. Now, you may have seen it, but I didn't see it. 
So the beginning, Matthew writes, at that time, and this is just a, a literary device to move to the next event. And he says, at that time, Jesus goes to the grain fields on the Sabbath. So he's setting the context. Jesus is with his disciples, and he is traveling, and he walks through the fields of grain. This would be wheat or barley. And he's traveling through through these uh, fields, and they begin to uh, feed themselves. They would pluck the grains, uh, the heads of the grain, and they would rub it uh, among, in their palms, and they would uh, then um, separate the wheat from the chaff, and, and they would eat it. Now, under the Pharisees, this was a violation of the law. This was part of the 39 things you could not do on Shabbat. Uh, you couldn't do things like lighting anything. You can't light a candle. You can't light a fire. Uh, today you can't uh, turn on uh, anything that, that creates a light or a flame. Therefore, you can't press that button on an elevator that calls the elevator down because it lights up. So you go to hotels, they have a Shabbat elevator. And on Shabbat, there's a designated elevator that stops at every floor in the hotel, all the way up and all the way down. And you really want to make sure you don't get on that hotel, that, that elevator because it takes takes forever. And those of you who've been to Israel are all shaking your heads because you've made that mistake. And, uh, and, and But you can't create a light. You can't start your car because that's going to create a spark. Uh, the, all of these things you, you, you can't do. So those are the extrapolations. God did what? God created light on the first day, so he rested from his work, so that's why you can't create light. So you weren't supposed to work, which meant you wouldn't go out in the fields and you wouldn't harvest. So they had broken this down and uh, said that if you took the wheat off the stalk, then you were guilty of reaping. And if you rubbed the wheat in your hands, then you would be guilty of threshing. And then if you separated the uh, or if you blow, if you blew on the uh, ch- chaff to blow the chaff away to separate it from the wheat, then you'd be guilty of winnowing. And then if you ate it, you would be guilty of storing it in your stomach. Okay. So according to the oral law, what Jesus and his disciples are doing is a violation of the of the law, but. It's not a violation of the Mosaic law as it is written. It is a violation of the Pharisees' interpretation of the law under under the uh, oral law. And so when they saw them do this, they said, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on Shabbat. It's not lawful according to their law, the oral law, but not. but it's not mentioned in the Mosaic law. So Jesus is very sophisticated in the way he handles their objection. I want you to notice this. He doesn't necessarily take them on in a head-on confrontation. He doesn't challenge uh, their interpretation of the Mosaic Law. He doesn't challenge the oral law. He challenges their understanding of Scripture in a sophisticated way because the real issue is they have created this structure of how you should live that violates the the whole intent of the law, which is what he will get to. So he says to them in verse 3, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? 
he and, and how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Now, we have to understand what is going on in this particular situation. He is pointing out that David also violated the Pharisaical law, the oral law, as they're understanding it, because he ate the showbread. Now, remember, in the in the tabernacle, there was uh, the holy the holy of holies and the holy place. The holy place is the antechamber, the outer room, which leads into the holy of holies. In the outer room, there were three articles of furniture. There's the table of showbread. There's the uh, uh, menorah that represents Christ as the light of the world. And then there's the altar of incense, which represents his intercessory ministry. The table of showbread represents Jesus as the, as the bread of life. And so the table of showbread was they, the, the Levites would bake the bread every day and they would put it in there. And then at the end of the day, it would be taken out where it is no longer consecrated to God, but it was, it was to be eaten and to provide food and nourishment for the priests. And that's the, the bread that uh, is being talked about here. The other thing that happens, well, first, before we talk about that, let's turn back to our passage in 1 Samuel chapter 21. So hold your place in Matthew, and let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 6, describes this event. Now, first of all, we have to understand just a little bit about the context. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, Saul disobeyed God, and he had disobeyed God many times, and this was the final straw that broke the camel's back, and... uh, Samuel announces that God is going to take the kingdom away from Saul and that he is going to provide a new king. Saul, though, is still left on the throne. He was still the king. So Saul is rejected by God as king in 1 Samuel 16. In 1 Samuel 17, the next chapter, David is anointed by Samuel to be the king to replace Saul. But Saul rejects David as king. He is antagonistic to David, who will be the next king. He persecutes uh, David, and he seeks to kill David on numerous occasions. Now, during this time, there are numerous people who have been disaffected by the administration of Saul, and they are gathering themselves around David and associating with him. First Chronicles chapter 12 gives a list of numerous people who have flocked to David from all of the different uh, different tribes. So, so what we have here is the anointed king who is gathering followers to himself and is on a divine mission and has been set apart to God and has been recognized by God as already as the next king. And so he comes to the tabernacle that is located at at Nob. He's fleeing from uh, Saul because Saul is persecuting him. And in verse 21, we see that we read now, David came to Nob. Now, those of you who have been to Israel, Nob is within modern Jerusalem. If you are um, up on the Temple Mount and you're looking across, you're looking uh, east across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives, if you 
turn to the 10 o'clock position or 9 o'clock position almost, you see the, uh, the area where the Hebrew University is located. That hill is Nob. This last year, the group that went this last year, when we drove in, and, and many, some of the other groups we've done this too, we go there first before we go to the Mount of Olives, and you get a great view of that, the Kidron Valley, the Mount of Olives on the left, and uh, um, the Temple Mount on the right. That's Nob. That, that's where the tabernacle apparently was set up. Now, we're not given a lot of information about what happened to the tabernacle after the Israelites are defeated at the Battle of Aphek and the Philistines captured the ark. And it goes through that whole little situation where the the, uh, Philistines take the ark down to uh, Gath and uh, they put it in the temple of Dagon and the next morning they wake up and Dagon's bowing down to the ark of the covenant and they set him back up on his feet and the next day they come in and Dagon's bowing down again they've cut off his hands and, and his, his hands have been cut off his feet have been cut off so the, then they go around this little circuit within the five cities of the Philistines, and a lot of things happened. They got these tumors or hemorrhoids or something like that, and so they were making these little images of the, of the tumors, and, there were, and they had a plague of mice, and so they made these golden mice and golden tumors and placed those in the ark, and all these things happened. Finally, they said, we've got to get rid of this thing, and they take it back to Israel, and it's taken to Kiriath-Jerim. And it stays there until it is eventually moved to the Temple Mount, uh, by by David or moved moved up to uh, uh, that loca- near that location, but apparently the tabernacle was moved close to the Temple Mount area where it would eventually eventually everything would become permanent there on the Temple Mount, and so it was set up there on on at Nob on that that hill over there, and so this is why David stops there and he goes into the priest. And he's got his men with him, and they're they're in flight from from uh, from Saul, and they need food. And the priests recognize that he is uh, been divinely anointed by God. He's on a divine mission with divine followers. That he is going to be the king. That's a key idea. He's going to be the king of Israel, and so therefore it is okay for him in these. Uh, dire circumstances because of their hunger for them to be given the bread. And so this is what we read. So David said to Ahimelech the priest, the kings ordered me on some business, said to me, don't let anyone know anything about the business, blah, 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 verse 3. Now, therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, there's no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have at least kept themselves from women. Then David said, or David answered the priest and said to him, Truly, women have been kept from us about three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel. They say that means it's been deconsecrated since it's been brought out of the out of the tabernacle. So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the show bread, which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken. That's the event that Jesus is referring to. Now let's go back to Matthew chapter 12. This is the same thing going on here. Christ is the anointed king. He hasn't become king yet. He still hasn't become king. 
Just like David was the anointed king on a divine mission, Christ is the anointed king on a divine mission. Just as David was rejected by Saul, Christ is being rejected by the uh, leaders of Israel. And in fulfillment of the depiction of David, and it was legitimate for David to eat the showbread, Jesus is saying it's legitimate for him to eat, eat the showbread in the same way. So this is the question that he's asking, and he raises the issue by asking this question. He says, don't you know the Scripture? that what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, that's a tabernacle, ate the showbread which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. In other words, this was designated for the priests. That was the way God was providing for them. But there are times and circumstances when you don't hold to a strict interpretation of the law, and one of these is in order to take care of life. And they were under dire circumstances. They had no food. They had uh, no sustenance. And so Jesus is saying it was right under those conditions not to follow the strict regulation of the law that this was for the priests. And then he brings up a second example in verse 5. He says, Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? There are a lot of people who work within the Old Testament framework on the Sabbath. When you're having all of the sacrifices in the uh, tabernacle or later in the temple, you, that would require hundreds of priests to be involved in the whole process of bringing the animals in, uh, slaughtering the animals, butchering the animals, keeping everything clean, washing off the altar. All these various things required a lot of labor, and so the priests worked all day. The priests were not supposed to rest on the Sabbath. They were to work. So this is Jesus' argument. He says, haven't you read that the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath? So he shifts from an image that relates to kings to a situation related to priests. Jesus Christ is our high priest. The uh, disciples who are with him are those who are his associates and those who are serving him. And so he says, first of all, uh, here's the situation where a, 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 an anointed king of Israel was fed the showbread, and then we have another example where the priests of, of Israel also violate the Sabbath, and that's legitimate. And then he says, uh, thirdly, in verse 6, he says, yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. The temple was a symbolic shadow of something future, a shadow of continued, it was a shadow place that where shadow sacrifices continue to be offered by shadow priests who are depicting the future work of the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're working in this, this shadow temple. So Jesus, and Jesus also said, referring to his own body, that if you destroy his, that, uh, his body, the temple, that he would build it up again in, in three days. That's in John chapter 2, 19. So he's, he's using this third image also of something from the Old Testament that points to him. And so he says, um, don't you know that in this place there's one greater than the temple? But And then he 
then he says, but if you understood this, and it's a quote from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This is the quote. God is more concerned with your personal application of the law than the external observance of ritual. And they put all the emphasis on external observance of ritual and ignored the internal spiritual realities. And so Jesus is saying you've basically violated the law because you violated the spirit of the law in your overemphasis on observing all of the regulations. And then he concludes with his main point in verse 8, where where Jesus says, For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So his point in all of this, as he's gone through each of these examples, the example of the uh, of the king who had been uh, anointed but was not yet king, of the priests and of the temple, all these things pointed to him, and he is saying, I'm the fulfillment of those types and those pictures and those images, and I am the Lord, I am the Lord who created the Sabbath. And therefore, I have authority to determine what is right to do on the Sabbath and what is not right to do on the Sabbath, and I'm the only one who has that authority. You don't have it. So by stating it this way, he is challenging their authority. He's challenged their authority to interpret the law and said they're wrong, and he's challenging their authority to uh, determine what is uh, acceptable and what is not acceptable on the Sabbath. So with this, he's challenging their whole system, and at that point, they are just just boxed into a corner. And then we're told that he goes from there, and there's a second event that follows uh, directly after that, verse 9. Now, when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. So he's been outside. Now he goes into the synagogue, and they go into the synagogue, and they've set a trap for him. This is an entrapment situation. They know that if Jesus goes in and sees somebody that is sick, that Jesus, out of his compassion based on his uh, track record, that he is going to want to heal this individual. And it's a, again, it's on the Sabbath, and so this would be a violation of their, uh, their laws and regulations re- regarding the Sabbath. So there, we're told there was a man who had a withered hand, and they asked him, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? They're trying to trap him. If he says, yes, it's lawful, then he's violated uh, their oral law. If he says, no, it's not lawful, then he's not being compassionate, and he's leaving this guy uh, in his condition with his withered hand. Notice how Jesus answers that. Again, shows the sophistication in how he deals with the confrontation, he asks questions. He doesn't just get into a head-on argument or confrontation with them, but he raises issues by virtue of asking questions that expose what the real issue is. And in verse 11 he says, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? This was common practice. Your, your sheep was money. A lamb was money. 
this was your livestock. This was your living. So certainly if your, your, uh, a lamb or sheep was endangered, then it would be perfectly legitimate to do something to rescue the lamb. And so that was acceptable under the Pharisaic interpretation of the Mosaic law. But by pointing that out, and they're all agreeing with that, that it would be okay to, to rescue this one sheep, then Jesus drives the point home and says, doesn't the life of a man have more value than the life of a sheep? And his logic is inescapable. And once again, he boxes them in so that they have no place to go. They can't say anything. And then he turns to the man and he says, stretch out your hand. Now, this is a man whose hand has been uh, has been withered from, from birth. The, the muscles have atrophied. It's it just all folded up and, and is stiff. He can't use it. And, and Jesus performs a miracle, not merely of restoration, but of creation. Uh, he is showing that he is the creator. He claims that. In the first example, in the first situation where the, he's interpreting the, the, uh, the, the picking of the grain on the Sabbath, and he says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, he is claiming to be the creator there who has the right to define what you do and what you don't do on the Sabbath. Now he's demonstrating in this significant miracle that he is the creator. So he's going to, it's not just a matter of, okay, you're healed, but the man's hand and forearm are completely normal instantly. The muscles have been made whole and usable. He doesn't have to go through physical therapy for six months or a year before he can begin to use his hand. Instantly, it is it is healed. And the man stretches it out. It's restored as whole as the other. Now, there's something else that is significant about this particular miracle. There is another miracle of healing and restoring a withered hand in the Scripture. And this is part of what is going on in our understanding of this text. Let me set the, great, the, better, the greater context here in Matthew 12. In these two confrontations, Jesus completely, totally angers the Pharisees, and they're going to react to this by going off and conspiring against him to destroy him. This is the first indication that they're going to kill him in verse verse 14. They, they went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. In the next section, as we get into it, he's going to cast a demon out of a demon-possessed man, and they are finally going to overtly accuse him of gaining his power from Satan. And this is the official rejection of Jesus' claims to be the Messiah. And then Jesus is going to announce divine judgment on this generation because they have rejected him as the Messiah, and it's irreversible. It's, and we'll study this next time. It's what is called the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And it's an irresistible corporate national sin. It's not an individual sin. It's a corporate national sin that's irreversible. That means 8070 is irreversible from this point on. That's, that's going to come. But this withered hand miracle takes us back to the Old Testament. If you want to turn back with me, go to 1 Kings chapter 13. 1 Kings chapter 13. In 1 Kings chapter 13, we have the story uh, in chapter 12 of the split between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. 
The king in the northern kingdom is Jeroboam. And Jeroboam's a, a, a wily leader. He understands that if he's going to have an autonomous nation in the north and under their, their, uh, under the Mosaic law, they have to all go down to Jerusalem three times a year in order to worship at the temple, that he's going to have a real problem maintaining a national integrity if they have to go to the uh, neighboring country in order to worship God. So he recognizes that they need to set up their own autonomous uh, religious system. And so he builds an altar in the north up at Dan. Those of you who've been to Israel, you've gone to Tel Dan, and you've seen the uh, area there that they've uh, recovered where the temple was there. And then he built one on the southern border with Judah at a place called, uh, called Bethel, Bethel, the house of God. And when he does this, they're having a huge ritual ceremony. They, they're bringing offerings, and he's claim, and they create another golden calf, claiming this is the uh, calf, this is the God that brought you out of out of Egypt. And God sends a prophet, an unnamed prophet, to confront Jeroboam at this point with his apostasy and to announce judgment upon. Uh, his false religious system and to announce a judgment on the northern kingdom. And we read beginning in verse 1, Behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. So he's right in the middle of this huge ceremony, uh, offering incense and burnt offerings, and the man of God cries out against the altar by the word of the Lord and says, O altar, altar. Thus says the Lord, Behold a child, Josiah by name. This takes us to the fulfillments in 2 Kings 23. He identifies a future king who's going to destroy this altar and by name, Josiah. And this is fulfilled later on. Josiah shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and the men's bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign, that is, the, the uh, man of God, the unnamed prophet, gave a sign saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar will split apart. This is how you know this is going to be confirmed. This altar is going to split apart, and the ashes on it will be poured out. So it came to pass, this is our verse, putting it up on the screen. It came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God who cried out against the altar, altar in Bethel that he stretched out his hand. So here's Jeroboam, and he stretches out his hand, and he points at the man of God, and he is going to uh, tell his guards to arrest the man of God. And when he points to the man of God, his hand withers. And he's looking at the fact that his right arm has just withered down to a stump. It's unusable. It's as if he had been paralyzed and it's been had been withered by from birth and so he he then um, uh, cries out to the man of god in verse uh, 6 in verse 5 the altar uh, the altar is split apart the ashes are poured out fulfilling that prophecy uh, in the immediate uh, time period indicating the far far prophecy would be fulfilled he says, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man had, man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Then the king answered and said to the man of God, so the king is standing there, his hands all withered, he watches this whole thing takes place, realizes the prophecy has just been authenticated, 
and he cries out to this unnamed prophet, please pray to uh, the Lord that my hand may be restored to me. And immediately he, he, uh, the, the, the king's hand is restored. The same miracle that occurs in Matthew chapter 12. These are the only two places you have the restoration of this withered hand. What's the significance of the restoration of the withered hand and the withering of the hand in, in 1 Kings chapter 13? It's a sign of judgment on the northern kingdom. So it's not just a coincidence that as Jesus is going to announce the judgment on Judea, on Israel for, the, for uh, AD 70, that the same miracle takes place in terms of the restoration of that withered hand, authenticating him as the creator God. So in the first part of the of this section, in Matthew 12, Jesus claims to be the creator God who has authority over the Sabbath. And in the second part, he demonstrates it by uh, restoring this man's hand and recreating it so that it's instantly usable. And the reaction from the Pharisees is they go off, they are filled with rage, and they plot against him. Luke chapter 6, verse 11 adds that thought that they are filled with rage. They are as angry as they can be. And then we have an interesting response from Jesus. When Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and the multitudes follow him away from the, from the town, away from the synagogue. And look what happens in verse 16. Up to this point, Jesus is telling his disciples to do what? Go to the villages in Judea and in Galilee and tell everybody. Uh, he's sending out his disciples to announce, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's telling everybody to go tell somebody. Now what does he say? He says, don't tell anybody. Why? He's, he has given the gospel again and again and again to the nation. They've rejected him, so now he is withdrawing the offer. They are not to announce it anymore. We find all kinds of passages in Scripture that people go to and yank out of context. I wonder why you never hear anybody say, okay, we're not supposed to tell anybody anything. That's what this verse says. Jesus says, um, Jesus warned them not to make him known. Think we ought to apply that today? See, not every verse is immediately applicable to today. So we are to, we're in a different circumstance, a different situation, so we are to uh, apply that. Now I want to go, we're not to apply that. Uh, I want to go to another passage to bring this point home. And I want want you to turn in your Bible to uh, Hebrews chapter uh, 4. In Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4, there are three rests that are spoken of. Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4. You have three rests spoken of. The first rest is the rest of God, cessation from his work during the creation week. The second type of rest that is mentioned here is the rest when the Israelites rested from their labor as slaves, and this is depicted when they entered into the promised land. And then there's a third type of rest mentioned here, and that is the rest that we will have when we enter into the millennial kingdom. 
And so as we look at this passage, I just wanted to mention a couple of different verses as we go through this. Look at verse 1. There's a warning. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, he's talking to believers. Entering the rest isn't going to heaven. Entering his rest is entering into the fullness of the inheritance of the kingdom, participating in the kingdom as a co-regent with the Lord Jesus Christ, ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you should come short of it. The illustration that he has used is of the Exodus generation who who were saved, but they failed to enter the rest of the promised land because of disobedience. And the writer of Hebrews says, as believers, we can fail to enter the rest that God has for us because of disobedience in our life. We don't realize the full inheritance that God has for us. Now, I want you to turn down to verse 8. He says that this rest wasn't fulfilled even in the conquest generation. He says, For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. That rest in entering the promised land was a type or a foreshadowing of our ultimate rest in the millennial kingdom. So that's the point he's making. That rest that Joshua gave them in entering the promised land was just temporary, but the the reality is what will come at another day. Verse 9, he says, There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself ceased from his works as God did from his. So when we look at this idea of rest... Remember what Jesus said at the end of chapter 11? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. And then we have these two episodes related to the Sabbath. But the ultimate fulfillment of these events, the rest that we have in Christ, is the rest that we realize in the millennial kingdom when we are ruling and reigning with him. But we can void that as believers through a life of disobedience. So we are to work now in terms of obedience so we can rest later. I have a coach at CrossFit where I work out who's now going to the church here. She has a favorite saying as everybody's wimping out and getting worn out at the end of a workout. She says, keep working now, you can rest later. That's the biblical doctrine. Keep working now because we can rest later. Don't forget that, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity of studying these things this morning and reflecting upon the rest that we have in Jesus, that the uh, patterns from the Old Testament of the sabbatical rest ultimately find fulfillment in Jesus and fulfillment in the millennial kingdom. And we, too, will enter that rest after we have uh, labored in service to you during this dispensation. We gain our salvation not by works, though, It's a free gift. We just trust in the work of Christ. He did the work. We simply accept it. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, uh, we pray that you would make it clear to them and that they would come to understand that they can have a certain fixed hope, a a certain conviction of their future in heaven by trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. The scripture is very clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's all that's involved in securing your eternal destiny. 
Father, we pray that you would challenge the rest of us who are believers with what we learned from this passage, that Jesus Christ is the creator God. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one who has the right to define reality, and we need to conform to reality by learning your word and applying your word in our life every day. And nothing is more important that we do than to learn your word, to learn to think as you would have us to think, that we might live as you would have us to live. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.